Welcome back to Understanding VC. I'm your host Rahul. Understanding VC is a podcast where I have in-depth conversations with venture capitalists around one specific topic related to venture capital at a time, just like a student would with a teacher. Today we'll explore VC due diligence for early stage startups with Caroline Kasser. Caroline is a partner at Vitalize Venture Capital, a seed stage VC fund that invests in the future of work. As partner, she manages firm's due diligence process besides sourcing and evaluating potential investments and supporting portfolio companies. Previously, she worked for GE Ventures in San Francisco, where she helped incubate and operate a startup in the drone space. Now let's talk to her. Hi, Carolyn. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, I, I was uh, researching the history of due diligence, uh, and I, I learned that you know uh, this practice became common. thanks to the security act of the us security act of 1933 uh where you know brokers became liable for revealing information about what they were selling so yeah i'd, I'd love to know what due diligence mean especially uh when it comes to the vc investment in startups and uh, why uh, vcs do this totally yeah so just for some context at vitalize we invest in pre-seed and seed stage companies and at this stage you know diligence is is equally as important one because just like founders have to raise money from investors we as vcs have to raise money from lps those are the investors in our fund and we are legally responsible to those shareholders you know to make them a return on their investment and so that's kind of the primary reason why we conduct diligence is to make sure that we're making smart responsible investment decisions into the companies and ultimately driving a return for our shareholders. So for us diligence involves kind of a standardized investment memo or diligence report that we've put together where we walk through a number of different categories that we'll talk through later on this call. Um but that's kind of the framework for how we conduct the diligence on our companies and it's important because of those shareholders that we're ultimately responsible for. giving a return to yeah so it's essentially looking at the potential risk of making the investment and also uh the potential rewards i guess right yeah so obviously there's inherent risk in this early stage investing and just that's in the nature of investing in such early companies but it's really looking for risks beyond that like we'll get into more of the details later but any potential risks beyond just the early stage of the company that could potentially if you if you missed or you didn't look at could be a reason for the the company not being successful in the long run yeah yeah so i mean it's it's quite common right vcs look at the team the product and the market so if you could go through all the categories that vcs look at from a for due diligence perspective one by one yeah if you could go through that would be yeah. great starting with obviously the team. Totally. Yeah, I always think it's helpful for founders to know what we look for in our diligence and we're very transparent about what we look for and what our process is. Starting with team. So, at pre-seed and seed, I will say team really is the number one thing. And I think founders hear that a lot and some of them are kind of like, "Well, what about the team are you looking for?" Um, yeah. it really comes down to one, it's it's can we see ourselves working with the team for, you know, 10 years. It's almost like you're dating or married to this team because it's a long-term relationship with them until the business exits. So one it's just that like is there that natural fit with us? But two it's do we think the team can execute? Do they have a vision and can they execute on that specific vision? Do we see signs of um it's little things like organization is the founder responsive to our emails during the diligence process because all these little things are usually a sign of how the founder and the team operate long term and so we look for a lot of little signals like is there any kind of arrogance that we are finding in in the way that they're working with us are they pressuring us to rush and get to a decision in like 2 to 3 days we're just not really interested in that and we tend to see that that can cause problems down the road if the founder really wants to work with us they'll give us the time that we need to complete the diligence on our end so it's kind of all those little things when it comes to the team that we believe can kind of set the stage for how the relationship will go down the road 
Um, additionally with team, we're always curious about advisors, especially at the early stage. The, while the team can be super strong, there are always areas that people are lacking and that's where advisors come in and can kind of help the company. And so we're curious about like, who are the top two to three advisors? What are they advising you on? What are they helping you with? And then lastly, is there a board of directors? And sometimes at pre-seed and seed, there's not, but we do want to understand what are your plans to create one, especially if you're doing, you know, a first priced round, that's usually when you would consider bringing on, you know, one of those investors as your um, first board member. And so just understanding plans to create a board of directors so that there's some fiduciary structure involved in the company going forward. Yeah. Okay. So I have a number of questions. Uh, one is regarding advices. So uh, some startups, they put a lot of advisor names on their decks. Uh, wh what do you think about that? Uh, a lot of yeah. them might be not relevant. Yeah. I, um, I, I don't like when companies put a bunch of advisor names on their deck when they're not real advisors. And it's a risk for the founder to do that. We do a number of back channel reference checks, which is like, if we happen to know one of those advisors that you listed or somebody in our network knows one of them, we're always kind of doing those back channel reference checks, reaching out to those people if we have a connection to them and saying, hey, you know, I saw you were listed as an advisor in so-and-so's deck, would love to know more about your experience working with them. And this has actually happened to me before where the person has said, wow, I'm surprised that I'm listed. You know, I've only talked with the company one time for 10 minutes. Like I'm not an advisor by any means. And I've been in situations where that's happened. And that really just puts a bad impression in my mind of the founder. It's almost like they're lying or stretching the truth on their deck. So I'd really advise founders to just actually have like two to three really close advisors that you work with and just list them. You don't have to have a list of 20 advisors. That's not what it's about. It's, it's just about complementing the areas where you need some expertise. Yeah. And also assessing uh, the team, right? Uh, you, you, you mentioned about, you know, little things like arrogance. So founders are quite difficult to deal with, right? In general. So what is that line between arrogance and self-confidence? And, and if you don't, if you're not really confident if you don't have the conviction and courage, you don't end up starting a startup. So uh, what True. is the line there? It's a good question. And it's one that I still struggle with. It's you want them to be confident, but not be arrogant. And it, it can sometimes that line can be blurred. And that's where like, I try to involve more people than just myself. For example, I'll have somebody else on my team take a call with the founder to see if they're getting the same impression I'm getting. Cause it can be helpful to have more than one opinion on that. For that reason, it is kind of a blurry line. I think examples of confidence are more, you know, ability, ability to answer questions. Like I've had some founders where I send them a list of questions as part of my diligence and their, and their responses, Oh, hold on. I've got to go talk to some of my advisors and my team to get answers to these questions. And, really the founder knows the company best and I just want to hear their off the cuff answer of the questions. And so that's an example of, I think where a founder lacks some confidence in their ability to answer questions. The arrogance comes out, I think in different ways. Like one example that I gave previously was when they're rushing you, Oh, we've got all these commitments. You've got two days to give us an answer if you want to invest in our company. And that, that more is, arrogance because it's like if you really think we can add value and you want us as investors in your company you'd give us a week or give us the time that we need to make the decision and so that kind of like pressuring tactic i think yeah. more comes from arrogance um those are just a couple examples of how i can kind of decipher but i agree with you it's a really fine line between the two yeah and in terms of their ability to execute right so what do you look for? Like what they have done in the past in terms of like maybe education qualification plus work experience or? Yeah, a combination of what they've done in the past, talking with former employers of theirs to understand how, you know, how they can execute when they're given something 
do they take it and run with it? Do they need a lot of help? Do they need a lot of guidance? Like it's a combination of reference checks, looking at what they've done in the past and just kind of in talking to founders, you can get a sense of whether they're going to need a lot of handholding or whether they are more of an executor, if that makes sense. It's more, again, I wish I had a clear answer, but it's more those like it's more of an art than a science, more of those soft skills that you just kind of pick up on after a couple conversations. And we've certainly been wrong. I mean, there are some founders that I thought in diligence were going to be executors and they've needed us to hold their hand every step of the way. And that's totally fine. That's what we're there for. But we do tend to see more success from the companies where the founders are the executors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, one personal kind of mental framework that I have is, you know, sign of a good founder is somebody who just needs a helping hand, not like not expecting me to really, you know, do things for them. Uh, that's a exactly. sign of a good founder, at least according to you. Yeah. And also, uh, what about like the dynamics of working together and complementary skills? Like, how do you judge that? You mean, how do we judge like if we'll be a good match with the founder? No, whether the team is like oh. yeah, their ability to work together and have complementary skills, etc. Got you. Yeah, good question. Again, it's hard to tell. One thing that I do in my diligence is I always have a call with the key team members without the founder on the call. So let's say there's three co-founders and maybe there's like a CTO that also is, you know, at the executive level, but maybe not a co-founder. I would have a call with the the two other co-founders, the non-CEO and the CTO, like whoever, I guess, like the top, you know, three to four people aside from the founder are, I get on a call with them and I kind of just see for 30 minutes, how do they interact? When I ask them a question, how are they answering? You can even just tell, like, is there one person that's dominating the conversation or are they all kind of bouncing things off of each other? And then I also ask them questions about what it's like working with the CEO and what are the strengths and weaknesses of the CEO and do you trust the CEO and just all these types of questions and spending 30 minutes with the team without the CEO can be a really interesting way to gather that type of intel. Yeah. And I mean, you can have the skill, they can work together, but then there's also the question of motivation of like, you know, this is a hard journey, like whether they will go through that. Like, how do you judge that? How to judge motivation level? Um, uh, again, more of an art than a science. Usually I will say the fact that somebody is a founder of a startup, they generally are motivated. And you can kind of tell in asking them, like, what's your long-term vision for the company? What do you see happening for an exit? You can kind of get a sense of like whether they're in it for the long run and whether they're motivated. And 99% of the time, if somebody is like basically giving up their life to found a startup and dedicate 24 hours a day to their startup, they're usually pretty motivated. So I haven't had a lot of issues in the past with lack of motivation, but it's definitely something that we screen for. Yeah. And does ownership, the percentage of ownership that the founders or the founding team has play a role in, into the whole motivation equation? Yes. Good question. It's something we care a lot about because I do think it plays into the motivation. We pass on companies often when we don't think the founder owns enough of the company. I recently looked at a company in the last couple of weeks that I really liked what they were doing, loved their traction, their business model. But the CEO, who was actually a replacement of the original founder, um, but the person had less than 10% ownership. And for a seed stage company, it's just that you're going to keep getting diluted and diluted, or you're going to have to keep recapping to get more ownership. And it just makes things really messy. And so we look for more of the standard, what I would call like a standard cap table at seed stage would be the founding team owns 70% or more of the company because at seed, you've really only raised maybe one round. If that usually you've just raised on safe so far. Um, and so really 70% at the minimum is what the founding team should own to be properly incentivized with the company. So that's a big thing for us. And we unfortunately just pass because we've 
we've made the mistake in the past and seen what can happen. Yeah. And also, you know, uh, I was reading the deck that you created on this topic. Uh, and then you, you mentioned about Google searches and social media checks. Uh, so <laughs> what are the red flags when, when, when you search for on Google? Yeah, I usually don't find much, to be honest, but I have one time in the past. And so I always just find that it's good to do a Google search, really just looking for mostly like, like, has, is there anything kind of criminal related that pops up on Google about the person? It's funny when you get like a very common name, like Alex Smith, and like, it's very hard to decipher, you know, you get all these random things that and criminals. But that's what I'm really looking for is just like major kind of personality red flags, trouble that they've gotten into in the past that they're not disclosing. And same with social media, just making sure that they look like a well-rounded, hardworking individual and that there's nothing kind of, I guess, unexpected that would come up. Yeah. And um couple of other things that you have here is like, you know, the executive team was professional and organized through due diligence and the team was responsive to emails. So why do you think these are important to check? Yeah, really just honestly, from learning experiences and pattern recognition, like we've, when we look back at the over 100 deals that we've done in the past, we look back and we track all this stuff when we do diligence on the companies. And then over time, we've seen you know, these, this group is the top performing companies, what characteristics did they have in common at the time that we did diligence. And one thing that we find is, when they're not organized in diligence, and when they're not responsive, you know, they maybe take a week to respond to questions that that's just predictive of how the company is going to perform down the road and how that founder is going to work with others down the road. So for us, it's really just we've looked at a lot of data and we've seen that like the highly responsive, highly communicative founders tend to be better performers. And I think that's just indicative of to run a successful business. You have to be organized. You have to be responsive. You have to be on top of your stuff and have everything put together. And it, it goes along with having an organized data room. And I know it can be hard at, you know, seed and especially pre-seed because you don't have that much to put in a data room, but still just having what you have in an organized fashion is better than having it be a mess. Um, and I've had some founders, I ask, you know, can I get access to your data room? And they're like, well, I don't have one, just tell me what you need. And then they're sending one-off emails with all these different materials and different emails and everything just gets really convoluted. And so it's just easier to have a box folder or a doc send and have everything organized in folders. And it makes it easier for the founder and the investor, in my opinion. Yeah. And one last question around the team. One of the things that you look for is uh, ha whether the team has exited a business in the past. So why is this important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. So I will say for us, it's definitely not a deal breaker. It's not like we'll only invest if the founder has a prior exit, certainly by no means. I actually think a lot of first time founders can be even more motivated than second time or third time founders because they really want to get that exit under their belt. So for us, that's more of just a documentation piece so that in the future we can look back and say like, was there any correlation? Was there any difference in founders that had previous exits or didn't and how those companies performed later on? So for us, it's more of just that having that data point, but I actually personally don't really use that as a major judging point. I actually think, like I said, whether you're first time or second time founder, I think you can be equally as motivated to succeed. Generally, people say this a success in the past is not a guarantee of success in the future. Uh, it, it's apparently proven in research. Then, but, but I see a lot of VCs back second time and third time founders, right? So yeah. I often wonder why that is so. Well, I think some, some VCs think that, and I agree with this, that there's a lot to learn the first time you found a company. I mean, you're learning from the ground up how to build a company. And so you do have a lot of learnings that you take with you to the second time. And so I do understand where that comes from. But I've also those founders that are second time founders, at one point, they were a first time founder. And and so 
yeah, in my opinion, I just think that that's not a huge differentiation or something that I look for, but I do see kind of both sides of it. And I, I think in particular, a lot of VCs will back a founder that they invested in the first time, like they'll back that same founder again. And it's, it's less so because they've had an exit before and more so because they've gotten to know that founder for X number of years and seen how they operate and how they execute. And maybe they really believe in that person. And so they're doubling down again, if that makes sense, what I'm saying. But I think yeah. some VCs will back the same person twice and it's not necessarily because they've had an exit before. I think uh, in, in financing in general, trust is everything, right? So the, it's kind of probably trust that plays a big part. Yeah. 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 So when it comes to product, so what is a due diligence there like? Yes. Good question. So when it comes to diligence on the product, we're looking for a number of things. And again, at pre-seed and seed, the product is usually early. Like at seed, it's usually in market, but a lot of changes are still being made to the product. And so what we're looking for is things like what what's the near-term product development plan? So over the next six to 12 months, what are the key features or key implementations that are going to be happening? And what's the timing of those so we can get a sense of like in the next year, the product's going from here to here. We want to understand, and I don't know if other VCs care about this, but at Vitalize, for us, data science is important. We think companies that are successful in the long run, they have some kind of like proprietary way that they use data or leverage data. And so as part of the product, we want to understand what data are you gathering through your software and what what are you able to do with that in a unique way that others can't do or aren't doing. So it's, you know, development plan, how are they using data? How does like the pricing and revenue model, how is that structured? How do you plan on making money from this product? And then I always ask for a like three to five minute recorded product demo. Personally, I just find it very helpful to actually see how the product works. And so I always encourage founders to include that in their data room because just including screenshots in a deck can be very hard for not just an investor, but anyone to understand how the product actually works. And seeing a demo is super, super helpful. And then the last thing when it comes to product that I like to do is we have a technical advisor who we always go to and we ask him to look at the company's tech stack because I'll be honest, I'm no technical expert at all. And so it really helps me to send to kind of a third party and just get a sense of like what's unique on the back end with the product is it structurally sound is it set up in a way that as they scale you know the product will be able to scale or will it have to be completely rebuilt because it's not set up properly so the technical aspect i think is also important so hopefully that helps that's kind of the the different sections i think about within product yeah so there's this question around moat that investors ask, right? You know, what if mm-hmm. Google decides to build this? <laughs> so does it make sense to also think about, you know, what could be the differentiation, if not now, but in future? Like, so so you have this Hamilton Hermos seven power frameworks that everybody uses in terms of what could be the differentiation. Uh, does it make sense mm-hmm. to uh, think about this at this point? Or Totally. Yeah, you got a, a step ahead of me. I... Uh, I usually think about that in terms of the competitive landscape, but regardless, yes, super important. I always ask the founder, what is your primary differentiator? Because I do a pretty deep dive on the competitive landscape. Usually I I find who I think the top like four to five competitors are. And then I really understand what those products are. And then the primary thing I want to know from the founder is what are you doing differently? What will keep you ahead of these others? What's your advantage? And there has to be some kind of unique proprietary thing that that the company has that others don't or others couldn't create. I think that's super important. Yeah. So this is something that I would love to know. You know, how do you look for competitors? So let's say a startup comes to you for due diligence. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. What is your research or, you know, how do you go about finding uh, competitors? One of the things that I've done uh, is that, you know, there's this tool. I can't remember the name of the tool. So what it does is that it basically searches for 
similar websites reading the the mm. the words on 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 the product i mean the the company website it finds similar websites so that was one way of finding competitors is there any interesting ways uh, you can find competitors Well, I would love that. You'll have to tell me the name of that later so that I can look it up. I'm always looking for ways to automate our diligence and use AI to kind of help with it. To be honest with you, I'm more old school right now and do it a bit more manually where I go to PitchBook and Crunchbase and I search the company name and they'll list out like all similar companies in order of like most similar to least similar and that's kind of my start starting point. And then honestly just googling like let's say i'm looking at a i don't know platform for we invested in a platform that automates finances for freelancers so i'll just google finance tools that automate finances for freelancers and you'd be surprised how much will come up in a search like that and oftentimes i find competitors that aren't listed in the company's deck as competitors and that's to be expected they can't list every single possible competitor but i it is important for us as investors to do our own competitive diligence than rather than just relying on you know what the company lists in their deck cuz there's always others that pop up and and so that's yeah it's very manual for me but would lo- would love to know the tool that that you had heard of if you can tell me after <laughs> yeah sure yeah and uh, let me think about that plus you know uh, but there's also this right uh, founders don't have paid subscriptions to pitchbook and crunchbase and all those so how can yeah. they find <laughs> is it about googling i they should just know what's out there from like customer conversations usually that's how i think founders find out about their top competitors mm-hmm. is they're talking with a potential customer and they should ju- the founder should ask like what other tools were you considering in your search and you know that's how you can kind of learn about at least the closest ones to you. So I think a lot of it is just the founder being in the weeds in the business. I'm sure they've come across most of the competitors and otherwise just googling should should get them what they need. Yeah. And what if you find a competitor that, you know, the founding team is not the startup is not aware of? Is that a red flag? It's happened before to me and it's only a red flag if it's like a really, you know, direct competitor. Like there was one time where I was really shocked that the company hadn't heard of this one because it was so so similar and selling to the same target audience. And in that case, I just could not comprehend why they hadn't heard of it when this is what they do for a living. They should know that. Um, but it there's always going to be indirect competitors that are doing something kind of similar that's not the exact same that I don't expect founders to know hundreds of companies or every single thing that's out there if that makes sense. Yeah. And you know one last thing around product. One of the things that I found difficult was pricing. So what like if the pricing is really off or you know if you see that the startup is not really so some startups don't monetize data in the beginning. So if there are mm-hmm. some red flags like that like, you know what are those? That's a good question. I rarely find red flags about pricing at the early stage because it's it's all about trial and error. So I tend to trust that the company knows what they're doing with that and that they're trying different like let's say revenue is decreasing or they're not getting the traction that they expected within a certain customer base. Like I always expect that the founder is kind of testing different pricing and figuring that out. and that's just the nature of the early stage so i don't really to be honest with you yes i want to know what their pricing is and yes i want to know how it's working for them and what they're doing if it's not working but i'm not like really making a ton of judgment calls about the pricing because i just know that at this early stage the pricing is bound to change and they're going to figure it out and they're going to adjust so i don't really have like a a major red flag i look for with pricing it's more just i want to understand how the founder is thinking about it so far okay so what if the founder is missing like a source of revenue like it could be like monetizing the data or something else uh, mm-hmm. that is so obvious to you but there is no vision uh, from a founder side on on such yeah. a thing uh, what do you think about such a scenario yeah i think that would be a red flag if they hadn't thought of something and weren't open to something but 
it's rare that I come across that. I've I've had situations where I mention, hey, have you thought about monetizing this way? And the founder is like, oh, yeah, like definitely have thought about that. Here's X, Y, and Z reason why we're not doing it right now, but we're going to do it in the future. And like usually they have a really thought out answer about it, but it would be a red flag to me if like they had never thought about it, didn't, you know, wasn't open to looking into it type of thing. Um, But I would say for the most part, the founders know more about their business than I know about their business. And so it, it is pretty rare that I would have some vision or idea like that, that they didn't already think of. Yeah. Moving on from product, uh, the other thing is the, the market sizing, right? So uh, how to do this? So, um, you know, uh, the consultants, they use this market sizing uh, generally to come up with the rough market size. Is that the way to do it? Or is there other ways to uh, do market sizing? Personally, I... I have an issue with a lot of, with the way that most founders do market sizing. And here's why. What I see in most found early stage founders decks is let's say that they're going at, um, let's say they're like, I don't know, a health tech product, just random example. What I see founders doing is just saying, okay, here's the healthcare market in the US and it's like $500 billion or whatever. And they're doing very much like a top down, just Googling the entire market size. And I just find it to be so inaccurate that it, it's almost frustrating that it's even included at all. What I much prefer and what I do on my own side anyways, my own diligence is I do a very much bottom up market sizing. So what I do is I take the selling price of the product and then I... I try to really understand who they're selling to more specifically rather than more broadly. So like if they're targeting, you know, businesses with a hundred to 500 employees, just random example, I'm going to do a bunch of research on how many businesses in the U S well, let's say it's software businesses in the U S with 100 to 500 employees. We want to get as granular as we can. So I'm going to do research on how many of those companies there are in the U.S., find a reliable source and get that number and then multiply that by the annual selling price or the the average contract value, whatever information I have from the company. And that's how I can get more of it, like an accurate bottoms up market sizing of their specific target market rather than like the entire, you know, healthcare market or whatever it is. And it's usually a lot smaller, but it's what I'm looking for is that it's greater than a billion dollars because I want it to be big enough that there can be competitors and multiple competitors can be successful in the space. I want to know that the space is growing. And so we'll typically pass on a deal if we can only calculate like a 500 or $600 million market size. We're really looking for that billion plus, and we really want to do the bottoms up analysis to make sure that we're able to calculate that. And so I wish more founders would do it that way in their decks. I just feel like so many do this like giant number, this just like blanket number. Um, So founders who are listening, I think investors would appreciate that, but that's just my two cents. Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, you mentioned about the market size being small, less than a billion dollars than you would pass. But there are these large outcomes that has happened in the history of, you know, venture investment uh, that started off with very, really small market, but then there there were these adjacent markets that made it really big, right? So how can you, you know, think of those, what could this more be like on top of what they're already doing? Yeah, I think there are always exceptions to it. And part of it is having that vision as an investor of, whether that space is going to take off in the next couple of years. And a lot of it is about timing because really you have kind of a seven to 10 year horizon from when you invest in a company till when you need it to exit so that you can return that fund to your LPs. And so a lot of it is like, maybe the market's small now, but do I think it's going to explode within the next five to seven years, 10 max? It's kind of having that vision as the investor. But if you think it's going to explode in 20 years, but not within 10, then 
you know, the timing may not be right to invest in that space right now. So it's a combination of timing, gr- the pace of growth of that market and just doing the, the market sizing to see if you think it's big enough now as well. So it's kind of those three things. Yeah, beyond the market, one of the other categories that you look for is the, the growth. I mean, the sales and the marketing side of things, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, what is a due diligence there? Like, are, are you just looking at, you know, they have a clear go-to-market strategy? And like, what are some of the red flags there? Yeah, so we look at, you know, go-to-market and sales and marketing, what the company is doing. I It really depends on the stage of the company. I think like at pre-seed, it's very different even than seed because pre-seed, a lot of those companies are pre-revenue. They're still finalizing their product, really. They haven't even shipped the product. And so go to market while it might be in the back of their minds, it has yet to be tested. And so for that, I'm looking for more of just how is the founder thinking about what they're going to do? Do they have a clear plan for when they do launch the product, how they're going to go to market and have they run that by advisors? What like kind of early testing have they done on that thesis? So that's what I'm more looking for at pre-seed. At seed, if they're already in market with the product, I'm looking for what are kind of their top two to three strategies? Are they doing cold outreach? Are they doing, are they spending something on marketing? Are they hiring us, you know, building their first sales team and having account executives that are out there selling? Are they going to conferences? Are they doing content generation? Like there's a number of different approaches, channel partnerships. There's so many different approaches that companies can take. I'm really looking for what are the top two to three, what's working? What have they tested that isn't working? And kind of what is their go forward plan? So any data that they can share around that is helpful as well as what does their sales pipeline look like? Um, you know, what what dollar amount really is in like the late stage pipeline of customers that they think are likely to close so we can get a sense of what future revenue will look like. And then have they had any churn? I'm always curious of even if churn is low, but you've had a couple customers churn, why did they churn? I'm always like, I'm always asking what reason did that customer give for why they are no longer working with you? And that gives a lot of intel about the product itself too. So when it comes to go to market, I guess I would say it's about what what have you tested? What are you doing? What's working? Have you kind of found a, a sales motion that is working for you? And if not, what are you doing to address that? Yeah. And a red flag, some of the red flags would be a high churn rate. Uh, but but then again, if, yeah. if you're targeting SMB, uh, the high churn rate is like a given, right? So, uh, and it could be because of uh, reasons that is not uh, direct. I mean, because of the product that you're selling. Yeah, I still think high churn rate is a red flag because even if you're targeting SMBs and maybe they churn for other reasons, then are you going after the right customer segment? Because high churn can can cause a lot of other issues for a company. So that's definitely one of the main red flags I would look for and would really want to understand what they're doing to address the high churn and to improve it. Other red flags would be like, honestly, just sometimes cost. um, High acquisition costs. Yeah, high customer acquisition cost, But that's also so in flux at the early stage, like that's And a lot of early stage companies aren't doing any marketing whatsoever, no paid marketing. And so that can even be hard to calculate at the early stage. But more so a red flag would be just a founder not not really having an answer about go to market. Like you'd be surprised. I've talked with founders who I say, what's your go to market strategy? What's working for you? And they just say, oh, you know, I'm just doing direct calls and that's it. I'm sending cold emails and we'll see how it works. You know, just vague answers. Like they have no real plan around it. And I see that leading to problems down the road when it goes back to like the whole organization thing. If a founder is organized, they'll have a clear plan and a clear path forward when it comes to go to market. Just curious, what would be a good answer if 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 you were to ask a founder? A good answer for go-to-market is just um, here are the three things we're doing. We're doing 
cold email. We're doing content generation and we've generated, you know, we've developed this community of X amount of people that are following us because of our content generation. And that's led to this many customers. And then, you know, number three, we're doing, we're testing out some paid marketing. We're doing some Facebook and Google ads, and this is how that's gone so far. Like, I guess a good answer is regardless of the strategies that you're testing, how are they working? What have they led? What outcome have they led to number of customers? What has the churn looked like? as a result of that. And so it's, it's really just, yeah, that you're, you're trying things and you know how it's working and you know how you're going to adjust. Yeah. So besides these, what are the other categories of intelligence process? So financials are a big one. I know some, some people have said to me in the past, like, what, like do financials really matter at the early stage? And in my opinion, they're one of the biggest parts of diligence they're one of my it's one of my main focuses is the financials and here's why um let's start with the balance sheet so i've you'd be surprised how much i've found like a lot of debt on some early stage companies balance sheets and that's a red flag to your question about red flags because it, it can be hard for a company to get to that next round of funding and raise that next round and get to that next stage if they have a lot of debt and I don't mean like having raised a couple convertible notes or safes, but I mean, I've seen companies with like $500,000 of credit card payments that they owe. And like, that's just not normal for a seed stage company. So it's things like that, that concern me. Um, other concerns about liabilities would be large amounts of accounts payable that the company for whatever reason owes, but isn't paying. So I do an in-depth look at the balance sheet and ask kind of line by line questions. What's this? What's this? What's this? Just so I have the clear picture of that. And then when it comes to the P&L, on the other hand, for me, what's really important is two things. Revenue growth. And I say that because how I mentioned that we've analyzed those over 100 companies that we've invested in the, in the past and how they're doing now. One of the main drivers that always comes up in this analysis is the companies that are doing really well today they had strong revenue growth rates even when they barely had revenue like even in the really early stage when we were diligencing them it's it just tends to be a sign of how their revenue is going to grow later on and others might disagree with this but i've just seen in my data that that tends to correlate and so i look for like more than 15% month over month growth, more than 100, the company should be doubling revenue every year. So more than 100% year over year growth, even at the really early stages. And it's not that we won't invest if it's not the case. It's just these are definitely some signs that we look for. And then the other thing is runway. In, the, in my analysis, I've also found that companies that wait to raise until they're almost out of money, they tend to be less successful later on. And it could, it could go back to like, maybe that that founder isn't organized. And so they waited till they had, you know, two months of runway to raise, but it all kind of comes together and, and leads to them being less successful later on. And so I look for companies to have more than six months of runway. Um, that's just kind of a, yeah, a data point that I look for. So those are some examples of what we're looking for with financials. And then, um, one last thing on that is financial projections. Um, we're not looking for like super detailed financial projections, but we just want to know how you're thinking about things. So maybe the next three years annual projections to see how you're thinking of growing the team, how you're thinking revenue is going to grow, all of kind of the details that go into the model that lead to the output. I'm just curious to see how a founder is thinking through all of it. Yeah. And in terms of projections, what are some of the, you know, the thinking which is wrong? <laughs> like, I mean, red flag. Thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's like wrong, not enough growth, too much growth. <laughs> I see a lot of companies saying, you know, in three years, they're going to be at 100 million in revenue. And it's just not true. So it's more just things like that. Like, are they way off? Are they way off the charts in terms of how they're thinking about things? Are they not realistic? Um, 
Yeah, no particular red flags, I guess. Um, looking even at things like salaries in their model is important to make sure that a founder isn't going to go from, you know, pre-seed to seed and all of a sudden take like a crazy high salary. Just little things like that. It's like going through the model in detail gives me a sense of like how the founder is planning for the future. So there's not one particular red flag. It's more looking at the whole picture and understanding how they plan to grow the business and just do I think it's like in general reasonable or not. Yeah. Uh, and, and besides this, what else becomes, I mean, in terms of due diligence? A couple other, a couple other sections I'd love to highlight that I look at. We, we do kind of an exit analysis and this isn't really like founders don't really need to know, I guess, all the detail that goes into the exit analysis, but it's helpful for founders to know why we do it. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we have a duty of our LPs to make a return on the investments. And so the exit analysis basically says, if we invest X amount in this deal at these terms, here's what we'll own of the company. And that ownership, we make some assumptions. Okay, let's say the series let's say the company raises a series A at this amount, then a series B, then a series C and so on. And maybe they exit after series C in seven years from now. And here's what our ownership will be then after getting diluted through these other rounds. And then if we, we look at comparable transactions, so I go on to PitchBook and I see what acquisitions have happened in the space, what IPOs have happened and what the revenue multiples have looked like at the time of exit. And then we make some assumptions about that and say, okay, here's our ownership at the time of exit. Here's what we think the company will exit for. And so here's how much we'll ultimately return from this investment. And so that's a big part of our diligence is just kind of, and it, a lot of assumptions go into it, like I said, but what do we ultimately think we could return from this investment? And that helps us assess whether it's worth the risk or not. Any questions on, on the exit piece? Um, not really. So I, I've seen this uh, because, you know, Pessimo Venture Partners, uh, they make the their investment memos public. So I've seen this. Uh, it's, it's very interesting how they yeah. uh, they think about how much they could. <laughs> um, yeah. And and what about the, the key deal terms uh, and also any other things that becomes part of diligence? Yeah. So for deal terms, it's definitely varies by VC. So I'm not speaking on behalf of all VCs. I think a number of VCs have target ownership percentages, like they need to own 5% or they need to own 10% of the company because that's part of their overall thesis and strategy. For us as a smaller fund at Vitalize, it, it would be hard for us to, you know, get 10% every time we invest. We don't and we don't write large enough check sizes to do that. So we're not really driven by ownership percent. What we are driven by when it comes to deal terms is, are they reasonable? Do they make sense for where the company is at today? So just from seeing so many companies day to day and what what's normal in market for like a revenue multiple of, of what your revenue is and what valuation you're raising on, we just kind of know what's normal and what's not. And so if a valuation is, you know, we've passed on companies that are pre-revenue raising on a 30 million valuation. We've also invested in those companies and have seen it not go as well. And so we've learned that like capital efficiency is important and founders that raise on fair terms, we tend to prefer working with those founders because they're not trying to raise on crazy high valuations, which can ultimately set them up to take a down round the next round if they don't hit certain revenue milestones. So I've just, in my experience, seen how that can go. And so we're looking for, you know, fair terms, reasonable valuation. Um, we require things like information rights and pro rata rights. I think every fund has kind of their own requirements and things that they look for, but we tend to keep things pretty standard and as long as everything kind of fits within that like standard box, then that's what we would be generally looking for. Yeah. And what about uh, the next milestones? I, you mentioned, uh, you know, 
the short runway from a founder uh, as a, a, a red flag. But what about the next milestone? How do you assess that? Yeah, in terms of milestones, if I'm understanding you correctly, um, we so one question I always ask founders in diligence is like, what three milestones are you going to use this funding to achieve? And what I'm looking for is, you know, I'm going to hit, I'm going to use this money to hit 1 million in ARR and I'm going to acquire this many customers and do this, this, and this, and then I'll be able to raise my series A. And what I'm looking for then after I invest is to really hold the founder accountable to that and help them hit those milestones so that they can raise that next round and get to that next level. So when it comes to diligencing and asking about the milestones, I want to make sure they're realistic. I want to make sure the founder has a clear plan to hit them and that it's not just some made up number that they actually can, you know, acquire that many customers and get to that revenue. And so that's really what I'm looking for is the path to how they're going to hit those. Yeah. And in, you, you talked about uh, talking to, you know, customers, team members and things like that, right? And most of the time, the team would give you like reference person like customers or advisors or other other team members but then you know i've had a lot of founders you know call me up and say you know say this when my investor calls you like when i am the customer for for, for a particular <laughs> startup so <laughs> is there any point in talking to uh, you know the contacts that that's given by the founding team to you yes i'm glad you brought this up so this is the like last part of our diligence process. And what I think is actually the most important is references. I think of references in two buckets. So one is the, the references that the founder gives you. And I do think those are important. And I always talk with those people. And for that bucket, it's really, it's customers, key employees, maybe a board member or, you know, key investor, like the lead investor I'd always want to talk to. So customers, employees, board members, investors, those are typically the buckets that a founder will introduce you to. And I always talk to them. I always like to get, and of course they're going to say positive things, but it's still, you never know what might come up and it's good to get that positive feedback as well. Um, the second bucket though, is what I call back channel references. And these are where I place most of my effort and most of the importance is on these and what the back channel references are is reaching out to people that you know where i start honestly is linkedin and i see who i'm mutually connected to with the founder and i reach out to friends of mine and say hey i see you're connected with this founder you know i'm evaluating his company or her her company for potential investment can you tell me your experience with this person and i get really interesting intel from that because sometimes and it's usually very um, consistent, like a number of people I reach out to, they're all saying that they've had mixed experiences or they're not raving about the person. And so then that's kind of a clear signal to me to probably pass on the deal. But more often than not, like all of the back channel references are raving about the person. They're amazing. I've, I've worked with them here or there and and blah, blah, blah. But in addition to doing back channels on the founder, you can also do them on the co-founders, on other employees, on, you know, like I mentioned in the beginning, if you're connected with one of the advisors they've listed in their deck, doing that is helpful as well. And you can just get really interesting intel that way. Um, in addition to back channel references, I also reach out to a number of external folks as part of my diligence process, one of which is we at Vitalize have a future of work advisory board. And so this is made up of, I think about 20 to 30 um, HR executives. And a lot of the deals that we look at are, they sell into HR. And so it's really helpful to get intel from executives that have been in HR for 20, 30 years and understand like, are you buying this type of software right now? Is this something you would ever buy? What do you see are the pros and cons of this? And so we have different advisory groups that we go to for um, advice on every time we're doing diligence on a deal. And then I mentioned, I also send deals to my technical advisor. And so these are kind of all a number of steps that go into that like back channel process. Yeah. You know, the, the one person that I've heard 
or in the media i don't know him personally is about leaf fixel so he used to run tiger in the past he has a different fund collaboration so he invested a lot in india and i've heard many founders say that you know when he comes to meet with them it's like he knows more about the business than than the founder himself and one <laughs> of the thing that he does is that instead of just talking to employees he talks to ex employees and things like that uh, it's insane apparently uh, the diligence process uh, that wow that they had back then yeah that's interesting yeah and and um curious to know like when does the diligence process begin uh, in terms of the the investment uh, uh, startups interacting with you to raise funds uh, so when does the diligence process uh, begin uh, and also how, roughly how long does it take yeah so for us at pre seed and seed um before we would start diligence and then we can finish in a week if we have everything we need from the founder like if they have that organized data room that i mentioned and everything's in there we can finish in a week it is a little it becomes a little bit difficult with doing the references because you need to give people time to get back to you and set up a quick phone call and and what not and so usually i will say the end to end process tends to be more like 2 weeks including the references but i still think that that's pretty streamlined and then we also have an angel community that invests at pre-seed and the angel community does tend to take a little longer cuz you're gathering individual commitments from a number of angels and so our angel process is more like 3 to 4 weeks end to end but for our fund it's more that 1 to 2 week process if we have all the materials and um, offering the term sheet would be after before like when when does that happen that's a great question so we in particular don't generally lead rounds so we wouldn't be the ones issuing the term sheet we are like a 500k check you know second third check in after there's already a lead investor in place and so for us typically as part of our diligence they already have a term sheet and we're reviewing the term sheet and we prefer that there's a larger investor that's already set the terms and so that's one of the reasons too that we can move more quickly cuz a lot of times that lead investor has already done deep diligence and we like to be conscious of founders time where we're willing to just use reference check notes that the lead invest if the lead investor has already performed like customer calls and what not we don't want to duplicate efforts we'll just use their notes to streamline and so in that case we can be done even faster but if we're diligencing before there's a lead investor then we would kind of finish our diligence help them find a lead investor wait for them to find a lead investor before we would finalize our decision yeah and you know you talked about uh, founders sometimes putting doing pressure tactics like you know asking you to make, forcing you to trying to force you to make a decision quickly and things like that so has there been a scenario where you have compromised on dd due diligence or maybe the market in such is, is in such a state that you had to make a decision quickly has there been such a situation yes there have been a number of these and to be honest with you none of them have turned out well like looking back and i'd have to double check but every deal that i can remember that we've rushed through because we've been pressured those companies aren't doing well compared to other companies and so i don't know if that goes back to the like arrogance thing that we talked about but the founders that give us the time we need that really want to work with us because of the value that we bring them those are the ones i think that tend to be more successful and so we've really learned the hard way not to get pressured into the rush yeah and so other than this like what are some of the other challenges on doing diligence on pre-seed because there's very limited data yeah yeah I think that's it right there the challenge is when there's limited data it's it's hard to evaluate an opportunity and I think it goes back to the founders should have even with limited data they should have an organized data room they should have some level of data even if it's like there's no product they should have done you know customer um customer calls to like understand the pain points of who they'll be targeting and they should have done surveys research like there should be some level of data even at the very early stage and so i think a pain point for me in diligence is when a founder says like i don't have any data i'm too early for that like there should still be some something put together that we can evaluate otherwise there's nothing for us to evaluate 
Um, so that can be a pain point in diligence. And like I said, I think my biggest pet peeve is just the the lack of organization when there's no data room and it's one-off emails of here's this file, here's this file. And it's hard for me to, to keep it all together and, and organize it when the founder is not organized. Yeah. So your advice to founders would be have a data room, have it really organized well, have as much data and clear answers to your business and everything around it as much as possible. Anything else? Yeah, I think the ones you said, have a data room, be organized, be just be yourself, be kind, responsive to emails, like be confident without being arrogant. Just, I think, um, I think where founders can sometimes go wrong is overthinking everything. And oh my God, I, I have to get input from all these people before I can get back to this investor. Like, I just want your, your real true answer from you, the founder of, of what your plan is and your vision. Like, I don't, I think it's great that you want to get advice, but I think sometimes founders, the overthinking of everything the investor is asking for can lead almost to a bad outcome. I think just be yourself, be confident. You know the business that you're building more than anyone else does. And yeah, just have everything organized. That's my number one tip. Yeah. And uh, how many red flags would lead to like, you know, a failure of uh, due diligence? I don't, I really don't think it's a set number. I think it depends on the severity of the red flag. So if it's something, what I would consider a severe red flag would be some major like debt on the balance sheet or the founders don't own enough of the company. Like I'll just pass before I even go further in diligence because I don't want to waste the founder's time if there's like what I would call a big red flag. If it's a small red flag, I think things can be overlooked as long as there's not like five small red flags. Do you know what I mean? If there's, if there's like a high churn rate and that's the only thing wrong that I can find wrong with the company um, and they have a reasonable explanation for why there was churn and why there won't be churn going forward. Like just as an example, I think a limited number of small red flags is certainly doable. But if, if it's a large number of small red flags and they're kind of piling up one after another, that's where it wouldn't really make sense to move forward any longer. Yeah. And um, how do you guys use this? diligence report internally? Oh, good question. Yeah. Um, I've seen this done so many different ways. So we're big personally on process. And so for us, it's really, and I run our diligence. And for me, the reason I do the whole diligence memo is because I don't want to miss anything in my diligence. It's not because I have to have this memo done and it's going out to all these people. It's not, it's just for us internally. And it's for me to make sure I don't miss any steps in my diligence. That said, it's also helpful for VCs to have a tight process for when we're fundraising from LPs, you know, they want to see examples of our diligence memo. And so it's just for a number of reasons, it's good to have an organized standardized process one. So we don't miss anything two, so we can share it with LPs, three, so we can document our whole process. Let's say something goes wrong with the company three years from now, we can go back to our well-organized diligence report and say, how did we miss that? Or where did we talk about that thing? So those are kind of the three main reasons why we have the, or the organized diligence memo. And it's just saved internally in a box folder so that we can go back to it if we ever need it. But it's not it's not really shared ever. I will say the one time that I do share diligence is I tend to be a more collaborative investor with other investors. And so if somebody else is looking at the same company, I don't want them to have to repeat all the same work. So I always offer to share my diligence report with other investors who are looking at the same opportunity. And I ask that they don't share it with anyone else, that they keep everything confidential. But that's the one scenario where I would share my diligence memo. Yeah. Uh, you know, one last question before we end, you know, you shared your diligence process in uh, great detail. So uh, I, I, are you afraid that, you know, founders would listen to this and then, you know, try to game the whole process <laughs> to make sure that they pass the diligence, especially with you? Yeah, I like this question. I 
honestly just want to be helpful to founders. I think that sharing the detailed process that we run can only help founders be better prepared. And at the end of the day, I don't think they can game the system because their numbers are what they are. Like their revenue growth is what it is. They can't, they, they shouldn't and can't lie and change the numbers like they are what they are. And the data is what it is for their company. So I think what I've shared today can only help founders be more prepared. And I would hope that nobody would try to game the system. I think most founders are that I've come across are pretty trustworthy and honest, and hopefully they find this helpful. Yeah, this was great. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you for having me. It was great to be here. I appreciate it.